I was on the phone <laughs> negotiating with somebody, and this was an African American man, and he came to the office to you know like bring the contract, or whatever, and he said, "I thought you were an old Jewish woman." What? <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Marquita Harris, the Work and Money Editor for Essence, and welcome to Unbossed, a podcast for self-starters, entrepreneurs, and women who are about their business. All right, y'all. Today, I've got Lisa Davis here in the studio. Lisa is a woman with a lot of receipts in the entertainment industry. She's not a producer. She's not a director, but she represents them. During Lisa's career, she's represented entertainment directors, writers, and performers in film, television, and theater, and she's represented top athletes as an entertainment lawyer, and she's been in the game for two whole decades. Let's dig into her receipts. She's noted as one of America's top Black lawyers in the country. She's represented Spike Lee and Terry McMillan, among numerous other names you may or may not be familiar with. She's also been quoted in... Elle Magazine, The New York Times, and Black Enterprise. Also, as a little sidebar, for those of you who love political blogs and hard news, she has a wonderful blog called Journal of the Plague Years, a chronicle of life under Donald Trump. You definitely want to check it out. Also, because I'm not done yet, she's currently a partner at Frankfurt, Kernet, Klein, and Sells. But Forget all that. What makes Lisa so excellent is she not only advocates for other women through mentoring another generation of lawyers, but she's an advocate for herself. She's humble, which you're going to hear soon, but she understands that no one is going to vouch for your work and your worth like you. Okay, I fond enough over this woman. Let's get into this interview and you're going to hear just why she's so damn dope. Thank you. <laughs> so let's get into it. Um, I like to ask all of my guests this very basic one-on-one question about their beginnings. And I want to know, what was your first job ever in life? Ever in life? <laughs> um, I was a mother's helper. Okay. How old were you? I was 15. Okay. And what does that, what does that entail? I've never oh. heard that Kind of Basically, a, a nice way of saying a maid. A maid. Okay. Okay. Got it. So I was making beds, mopping up, you know, dog vomit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> real talk. Okay. 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 Um, mopping floors, you know, laundry, whatever folks needed help with. So you were in taking the summer. You were taking care of people at fifteen. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and you're originally from New York, right? Yes. Okay, I like get get these facts right. Where in New York specifically did you grow up? So I was born in Queens. Okay. Uh, then lived in Brooklyn, okay. in Crown Heights, and then moved to New Rochelle. Okay. Wow. So you're a rare you're a rarity because um, I'm I've, a I've, real native. Yeah, New Yorker. a real native because I've I've been here. I'm not a native. Been here almost almost ten years, and I'm often the cliche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I came here. I'm an export. Um, so to get into a little bit about your background, um, I know you graduated from Harvard. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your degrees. Tell me about your education experience. So let's see. Um, I've been thinking a lot about my educational experience in the wake of all of those scandals yeah. from last week. Um, I I have a lot of interesting stories around my Harvard educational experience. Mm. Um, one that I like to share is that when Harvard has this um, practice um, where 
every kid that applies to Harvard gets interviewed by an alum. So I was in New Rochelle. I was going for my alumni interview in New Rochelle. uh, It's right next to Larchmont. There's Mm -hmm. a street, Knollwood Drive. There's one end of the street is in Larchmont. One end of the street is in New Rochelle. Mm -hmm. I took a cab to the address. I get there. I ring the bell. Now I'm dressed for an interview. I'm wearing a navy blue double-breasted coat. I'm wearing charcoal gray wool slacks. Mm, I'm wearing knockoff Gucci loafers and stack heel and a gold buckle. You know, Oxford shirt. I'm like, I'm. You know, this is a Harvard alumni interview. So it was odd because I had set the time, but the house was dark and nobody was answering the door. So uh, after I'd been standing there about ten minutes, someone pulls in and they come to the door apprehensively, like with a dog in tow. And I say, well, I'm looking for, you know, the, the, the name that I had. And they said, oh, that mistake happens all the time. You're on the wrong Knollwood Drive. One's in New Rochelle, one's in Larchmont. So I was like, okay. And she, so the woman says to me, so, and mind you, I'm 17. Mm. She says, so, um, did you take the train? And I'm thinking, train? No, I said, you know, it's an alumni interview. I, I'm local. No. I said, no, I took a cab. And she said, Will you do day's work or oh, no. sleep in? Oh. So I drew myself up to my full five foot five and said, I am here for my Harvard Radcliffe yes. alumni yes. interview. She turned about 9,000 shades of red and purple. So that was my first. And obviously that wasn't the woman who had graduated from Harvard, but that was just kind of a, an introduction of, it didn't occur to her that I could have been a high school mm-hmm. kid coming for an alumni interview. So that said, um, stories like that, it's of course they're shocking, but they're also they're never surprising. Right. Which is kind of, which is the messed up part. Mm-hmm. Um, by that period in your life, I'm assuming you went through, you know, as someone who even went to Harvard, I'm assuming you went through a lot of just moments like that where people underestimated you as even as a kid. Um, I think not so much when I was a kid, I came of age at a point where kind of in the first, um, the flower of the integration, you know, efforts. Um, now on the one hand, going to school in Brooklyn and being bused into a white school, Mm -hmm. uh, our bus was met by protesters with signs, you know, screaming, you know, the first place I was called a nigger was in Brooklyn going to school. So there's that. But I was fortunate enough to have teachers that actually did see, you know, my potential, potential and believed in me. But also that's, you know, because I had parents. My parents were teachers. Got it. That was my next question. You know, so they, <laughs> my mother in particular was not playing. Okay. Ever. Ever. So. Okay. So when, but when you went to Harvard, it sounds like you were emotionally prepared. Absolutely. Okay. So tell me about Harvard. You coming from you know, clearly a different community, but also being prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of the first, what was your first year like? Um, I, my first year was actually kind of a blast because okay. um, Harvard at that point had figured out how to get a critical mass of black folks. Okay. And so we <laughs> had a community and the community embraced you immediately. Um, they would give you advice about what professors to avoid, what professors to take. You know, they would say, okay, what do you, you know, the upperclassmen would say, you know, what classes are you taking? What does your schedule look like? So it was really, you know, some of my best relationships and friendships 
you know, are with the black folks that I went to Harvard with. Wow, that's amazing. I hear a lot of stories now, even from friends who end up, you know, getting these full scholarships to go to these amazing on paper Ivy mm. League institutions. And when they get there, they don't feel supported or, you know, like it's they kind of feel like they're just they're alone. And maybe mm. there's not a lot of other students of color or they have to end up starting unions and different groups and all that. So I think that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, if you don't mind me asking, mm. what year was this when you were there? So I, <laughs> okay, I got out of I mean, of Harvard. you look 30, so, Thank you. At, you know, at the most. No, I got out of Harvard um, in the early 80s. Okay. So this is, you know, I was there, you know, during the Baki decision when they were trying to water down the African-American um, studies department, when we were constantly protesting about divesting from companies doing business in South Africa. Mm. So it was a very politically engaged time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't like the 60s and 70s, but it was still very politically different. engaged. And there yeah. were, you know, the other thing that was great is that there were also a critical mass of white students that were politically engaged. Uh-huh. Um, so you didn't feel like you were in hostile territory. Uh, I would say the institution um, then, it's probably a little bit better now, but then was kind of like, I mean, I'll never forget this. At a, at one of the um, protests, uh, the dean of the faculty of arts and sciences at the time was responding to our protest around divestiture. And he said, you are here for four years. I am here for life and Harvard is here forever. Ooh, okay. And I said, OK, then. All right. <laughs> but that's the kind of experience that prepares you for the reality of structural racism class barriers and how embedded and, you know, serious yeah. they are, that so, they're not easy to dismantle. I mean, coming into that climate, I have to, and now I want to back up a little bit and ask, when did you know that you wanted to be a lawyer? Okay. I'm a freak of nature. Okay. I have wanted to be a lawyer since I was, since I was eight years old. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I love it. And you knew what you wanted from a young age. Yeah. And okay. the, and the story I tell, which is really Sort of embarrassing, but I will tell it on myself. Thank you. When I was eight, I wanted to be president. And at the time, the presidents I was aware of, or the person that was president at that time, Nixon. Okay. Um, I, mean, I was going to, but you know what? <laughs> uh, was Y'all a lawyer. Now, of course, I didn't have a crystal ball to see yes. how he was going to end up. Uh, yeah. But I said, okay, clearly this is what you need to do. So okay. I said, okay, I'll be a lawyer. Uh when I got a little older, I realized the idea of being president was, was ridiculous, but I still very much like the idea of being an advocate for people. Um, and in a way, you know, the, this is the West Indian in me. When you're a lawyer, it, in a sense, you have your own business, mm-hmm. at least if you're in private practice. You have you attract clients. They're coming to you based on your reputation and your intellect and your integrity. So that was appealing to me. Okay. So you knew since you were eight years old. You, um, it sounds like you were very independent and very much unafraid of, you know, conflict and, and, you know, figuring out a resolution, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So let's fast forward back to when you were at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced even while you're pursuing that degree? Hmm. Challenges. Um, you know, I don't. Or did it come naturally? You I'm, can flex. You can. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think. I mean, look, I was I was an English major. I was smart. I picked something that came easily to me. Mm-hmm. So I love to read. I love to write. So 
I said, oh, I'd be an English major. I read books for credit. That that works. Mm. Read poetry, read plays. So, um, so that was something that I could pursue and really enjoy. And it didn't feel like work. Okay. Uh, so. Got it. So let's, we can kind of fast forward just a little bit. Um, I want to know about you graduated and you're, you know, on this path and I'm assuming you're energized and ready and hungry. Um, who was the first celebrity client that you got? Can you tell me? Uh, I can. So, um, <laughs> so I, you know, I started practicing law. I went to NYU for law school. So I went, I started practicing law and, um, I was interested in entertainment, but I didn't have any connections. Nobody in my family had worked in the business. I had a friend from law school who was working in an entertainment law firm. And she reached out to me because Loretha Jones, she said that she wanted to go into the business side of the entertainment business and work as a producer. And she said, well, you said you were interested, hand me your resume. Mm. So that's how I ended up in the firm that where I'm currently a partner. And the first client I, I got, I have a good friend, Carmen Ashurst, she was working at Def Jam and she called me up and she said, you know, these guys that are producing one of our groups, Public Enemy, they need um, they need lawyers. I was like, "Okay." So she referred them to me. And then after not too long, they said, well, you know, we think Public Enemy could use you. Were you uh, a fan of Public Enemy at the time? I was. Okay. All and right. I, I, I love this. The, they come to my office for the meeting. And so, you know, we set the what time. Like? It's three o'clock, you know, okay. so Chuck D comes, Terminator X comes, Professor Griff at the time, still in the group at that time. He came. No flavor. <laughs> An sorry. hour into the meeting, flavor shows up. Of course. Of and course. the receptionist, lovely woman, calls up. She goes, Lisa, there's a Mr. Flav here to see you. And I'm like, brother, you wear a clock. Come on. How are you late? You wear a clock. So. Got it. Okay. Okay. So that was the first kind of. That was my first. Those were my first clients. Wow. That's amazing. And um, what, during that moment, did you like ever feel, I don't know, like a little shy around celebs or has it always been, you know, some people, they close off a little bit. Did you, has being in that realm, in that world, always been something that came comfortable to you? I mean, I think it takes time to get used to it. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't shy, but I did have to, you know, I did have to get comfortable with speaking to people. And you have to give people advice and you have to tell them things that they don't necessarily want to hear. So you need to not be intimidated by them. Yeah. And you also, I'll never forget my... um, uh, my partner, Mike Frankfurt, said to, said to me, your clients are not your friends, you know, which was good advice was, you know, they're engaging you to be kind of the unvarnished, candid people to represent their best interests, no matter what. Um, so you can't be starstruck. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I talk to young people that are interested in the entertainment business or in entertainment law, I said, if you think that it is hanging poolside with Denzel, that is not the job. Back up. <laughs> that is not <laughs> the not job. Yeah. And I, you know, I would tell clients, um, you know, particularly early in my career when I was younger and enjoyed hanging out, I was like, I'm not going to be the person hanging out with you till three in the morning mm-hmm. because you want me lucid at 10 when I'm reading your contracts. That's right. So that's right. Speaking of contracts, um, 
I, it's my belief and just from just working with um, other people who are, are a little younger, a little younger than me and have kind of needed guidance. And mm-hmm. um, I, was, I speak with a lot of women who are entrepreneurs and they're mm-hmm. starting out and they've had a lot of um, a lot of things thrown their way that they didn't expect early on about intellectual property mm-hmm. and, you know, just copyright issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, given your background and this is something you're extremely well versed in, what advice do you have for for black women, so to speak, when it comes to um, claiming their intellectual property and being knowledgeable about, you know, this whole realm. Well, I'm so glad you asked me that question because that's something that I'm actually really passionate about. One of the reasons that I became an entertainment lawyer is because it is the one area of wealth that Black people create, mm. intellectual property. Mm, you know, sorry. <laughs> I had to you get know, a church, if, mm, but if yes. you thank you, yeah. um, <laughs> let the church say amen. Amen. Um, if you think about the culture of this country, if you think about musical culture, every form of music that is known as American music was created and invented by black people. Yes. Blues, jazz, rock and roll, R&B, hip hop, you name it. There's, you know, even country. You know, the banjo is an African instrument, you know, (laughs) in terms of its antecedents. So that is that is a huge source of wealth. And one of the reasons, um, again, that I went into this field is because there's also a history of us being defrauded of our the wealth that comes from intellectual property. So the advice I would have for black women who have any kind of intellectual property, whether you are creating a brand and you have a potential trademark, whether you are writing something, whether it is a novel or a screenplay or a book, um, is to protect it. And often to protect it, you you will need to get a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's investing in yourself because you, you know, and don't sign anything without a lawyer reviewing it for you. Um what about for women who maybe they feel like they don't have the the funds to afford to afford good counsel? Is there what opportun- what options do they have? Well, if it's someone in the arts, there's volunteer lawyers for the arts mm-hmm. that will um, represent people that are you know that don't have a lot of um, resources. Um, but I would say, you know, no matter what you're doing, if intellectual property is at issue. You've got to protect yourself. I mean, a perfect example is a brand. You know, often people will come to me and say, I've got this great, you know, name for whatever, my company, my business, et cetera. And they haven't searched it. Mm. And so, you, you know, if you start investing brand equity in a brand that you ultimately won't be able to control, then you've built wealth for someone, someone else. else. And we've done enough of that. Yes, we have. So. <laughs> we definitely have. Um in lighter, in a lighter aspect, and maybe even a more annoying one. Um, what do you think about the Kardashians? I, when I think of intellectual property mm-hmm. issues and uh, appropriation, misappropriation, mm-hmm. all these things, I, I immediately think of the many scenarios that um, I can't remember the designer's name, but um, a couple years ago, a designer, a uh, black woman designer, accused. Um, Two of the sisters, I believe it was Chloe and Kylie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna have to fact check that. Mm-hmm. But um, of pretty much, you know, an intellect. It was an intellectual property lawsuit, mm-hmm. and I think like 
that's something that comes up a lot when mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, just Well, even there just celebr- recently was a claim because they were trying to sell T-shirts with Biggie's face on them. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so, you know, what I think about the Kardashians is kind of a meta mm-hmm. <laughs> inquiry that we don't have the time yes. <laughs> to go into. Um, I would say they are doing something that lots of people have done, which is putting a white face on black styles and profiting from them. And no, and lots of people do that. It's not, you know, they're not unique in that. Yeah. They're just particularly good at it. Yeah. When you, when you were talking about that earlier, it just immediately made me think of them and the many times they've been known to allegedly, I will say that, do that because as per legal, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, and when I say, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about anything that's actionable. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, you know, whether it is lip fillers and, you know, the first self-made billionaire. Oh, seriously, oh, okay. seriously, we could go all day on that. I we, can't. But even. we won't. Yeah, we're we not going to do that. We're not going. You know what? I'm actually mad. I brought it up. <laughs> but, but it does make me think a lot about them and the many opportunities that they've kind of seized from us. And it's they're an example. And but I, I would I would like to pivot a little bit and say that I think right now we're in a moment where people are finally recognizing the value and the wisdom of Black women, mm. and so you know. Rather than, you know, lament what people have done, we should seize what we can do. Yes. Because we do have the genius and the resilience and the creativity. Um, you know, we, we, we are the originators. So now there's, there's an interest and an emphasis on what and a spotlight on us. So we should take advantage of that. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Ooh, a word. <laughs> um, switch gears just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of your professional milestones. What What are maybe three moments throughout your career that you felt just so proud of that you brag about or maybe that you want to brag about more? Let's see. Um, okay, one, which is going way, way back in the way back machine, <laughs> but... Um, when I was working with Spike Lee and we worked on, I worked on, I was production counsel for Malcolm X. And at that opening, that's probably one of the proudest professional moments. It's like this movie, Malcolm X was somebody that I venerated from very young and to be able to bring, you know, to have a small part in helping bring that story to the big screen mm-hmm. um, was something I was really proud of. Wow. I'm sure you probably have feelings about this year's, you know, with, with Spike finally getting. <laughs> uh, well, he, he's been robbed I mean, so, many times, so many times. So many times. Yeah. As, and as he said, when people are driving, <laughs> he, loses. he loses. I mean, I'm glad he got the Oscar that he got, yeah, but, but he deserved Way many more. more. Way more. Many more. My dad brings it up maybe every, maybe like every once a year, every time he's watching Malcolm X on TV, he'll mm-hmm. kind of call me and he like, we talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a moment that he can't let go of either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So Malcolm X, what's another one? Um, Brag. Um, <clears throat> another one that I'm proud of, which is an interesting one. I represented Valerie Plame Wilson, the spy who was outed uh, in the Bush administration, the CIA agent. Okay. um, In her book deal. I need to, I feel so like unknowledgeable. I need to look her up. I don't remember this. I need to. It may be, 
maybe your youth. Um, <laughs> I'm like, this I'm is during the Bush administration, but basically, um, it was uh, it was pretty much believed that she was outed as a CIA agent in retaliation for her husband debunking the case for the Iraq War. So she was going to do a book, and I represented her in that whole the whole odyssey of getting you know when you're in the CIA or any kind of covert situation you have limitations on what you can say mm-hmm. without the government approval and if you have a hostile administration you've you got can't. to figure i mean yeah. I, I actually went to the CIA headquarters and i jokingly said to my partners uh if i don't come back look for me in a black site in syria wow um i and you re- you you it sounds like you genuinely feared well, your, yeah, I know, don't know about your, genuinely or feared. Like, you know, it was gallows humor. You know, you just okay. don't. You just don't know. Okay. Okay. All right. That's a pretty big deal. I've never heard of her, and now I, you get you've given me something. I I have a weak spot for <laughs> for like spy stories and women in those spaces. Well, and they did a film adaptation of her book as well. What was the, um, the film? And I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. Um, I'm blanking on the name. It's okay. Of the book. Uh, and the film, but it was Liev Schreiber um, oh. um, was in it. And it was, um, oh, God, why am I blanking? Gonna, <laughs> you know what? You're going to think it's going to pop, come yeah, to you at I'll midnight. I'll email you later. <laughs> yes, yes, please. We'll include it. Fair game. Thank you. Oh, shout out to the producer who just shouted. Fair game. Okay. Okay. Huh. I got Now I have to watch this, but I want to, mm. like, check out this uh, this woman's story. Yeah, Definitely. it's a really that I know nothing about that, and I also think it. I love, like I said, I love spies and women, and um, particularly from that administration who mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we don't often talk about enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, you gave me two moments, two brag moments. I need one more. Oh gosh, I like women to brag, to brag about their accomplishments, brag about themselves, and you've had a career. I have, <laughs> and <clears throat> let's see. I have one that's going on right now, but I can't talk oh, about it dang. yet. Okay. Can't talk about it okay. yet. That's the problem. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's, we can move on. Okay. Um, as someone at the top of their field professionally, um, are you satisfied with where you are right now? Are there still dreams that you are definitely in pursuit of? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm Oh, I mean, to me, you should never be satisfied. Mm -hmm. You should be thankful, Mm -hmm. but never satisfied. Because if you're satisfied, then you're complacent and you're not looking for the next thing. How do you fight being complacent? Um, I'm really ambitious. And that, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't go away because I've, you know, had more than 20 years in in the game or anything like that. It's I'm just and also in the entertainment business, it's like you're only as good as your most recent deal. (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) So in my work, I often find that women are very insecure or uncomfortable when it comes to negotiation. When it comes mm-hmm. to negotiate, wh- whether it's contracts or, mm-hmm. you know, even like when you land a job and we don't realize that we shouldn't just take the salary that's given. We should, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. give them something back. What advice do you have for women when it comes to negotiating? Because I'm assuming that you are a heck of a negotiator. 
Uh, I definitely am. Uh, th- thank you. If I say mm-hmm. so myself, that that I will brag. Okay, about. that's a brag. That's, that's there's I, number three. No, definitely, definitely. Okay, uh, I'm I'm t- I have been known to say to people uh, when they've offered me something for my client, "Have you heard of the Thirteenth Amendment?" Yeah, I mean, I I don't even care. Um, and I think you know all of the things that you mentioned. Never to take the first number that you're offered because that's an opening gambit. Um, and there's been a number of studies done that men will apply for a job when they meet like half of the qualifications and women have to check off every, every single, single box. Yeah. And part of that is fear. Part of that is kind of the, the Girl Scout, good girl syndrome that you have to be prepared for everything. And, and so we have to be a little bit more, we have to be, um, my client Lovey says, you know, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know so that's okay so that's some advice i would give all right that's important to me and i just i hear so many stories all the time and i get um just queried from other women where Mm -hmm. they're talking about like i think i you know shortchanged myself because i didn't send this offer back or Mm -hmm. so and sometimes you know people you know if you are at a senior vice president level get a lawyer a lot of times I've had clients who said that they did not realize as a senior executive that they could have a lawyer negotiate their deal for them. Interesting. So, and then I've sometimes had people who have brought me on and then, but they have already agreed to the number. And I say, no, if you're going to have me come on board, bring me in at the beginning so that I can negotiate the number. Cause wow. I do, that's a lot of what I do as well. I represent a lot of senior media execs mm-hmm. and tech execs and negotiate their deals. Um, in terms of your career, can you tell me about a time where you felt that you failed? Hmm. And maybe came back from it. I believe that. Um, I mean, a lot of people mm. don't like to talk about, of course, we don't like mm. to talk about our failures and quotes, right. but it's my belief that if you're still here, it is never really a failure because right. you, you know, you overcame it. Mm-hmm. So is there a moment that you maybe felt challenged that you, you know, you felt like you couldn't get past that hurdle or mm-hmm. if you don't want to label it as failure? <laughs> no, I mean, I think so. I would say in terms of failure, I think when when you have a client and a client decides to hire a new attorney, you you know, that to me is a failure because I have a lot of long standing client relationships. Mm-hmm. So when somebody makes a change, I it makes me very introspective. What is it that they think that they're going to get with someone else that they're not getting with me? Um, I wouldn't say that I don't come back from that because also there are people that, you know, there are people that have had five, six, seven lawyers, you know, so people do so change part of the game. So that's part of it. But I mean, that's something that I, you know, okay. I think about. And so that's yeah an example. Okay. I would think too, like, obviously I'm coming in at this from a very outsider perspective, but I would think too, that might make you feel a little, maybe the first time it happens a little like, okay, like what did I do something wrong or what, how I mean, was that the first time it happened to you? Uh, I think the first time it happened, you know, and I'm happy to say it doesn't happen that often. Okay. Come on, come on. It does not happen that often. <laughs> you know, like I could probably name, you know, put it on like one hand mm-hmm. uh, the first time I was devastated mm. um I was much much younger um and then the other time you know I you know the other times I didn't feel good about it but I didn't feel I said well that's because sometimes what people will do is 
if things are not going the way that they want in their career, they'll say, well, let me just change up my team. Uh, so it's, okay. you know, as they say in The Godfather, it's not, you know, it's not personal. It's business. It's business. Yeah. And so that's how they perceive it. Okay. So, you know, I try not to take it personally. So. Got it. Um, before we were rolling, before we were recording, excuse me, um, you mentioned that Spike Lee, going back to Spike, helped get you your position at the firm that you're currently at, that you've been at for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, can you get into details? I got to know. <laughs> what was that like? How did you? How did Spike come in? So he was already a client at the firm. Mm-hmm. He had come in as a client with Loretha. And, you know, he and I were at NYU at the same time, and he knew some people at the law school. And we were both living in Fort Greene, so I... You know, we had friends in common. All, yeah. You know, it was Neighbors, all, all community. So I met him and he was he asked me something about, you know, you're a lawyer. Where are you, you know, where are you working? And I said, well, actually, I've applied to the law firm that represents you. So that's all he needed. <laughs> yes. And apparently he was the, the partner when they finally hired me said, you know, he was calling up saying, like, what about Lisa Davis? Hire Lisa Davis. Well, what's wrong with Lisa Davis? And in fact, I had very good credentials, so there wasn't any reason not to. Amen. So, you know, I was fortunate. That was enough. it. But I think that, you know, and often people who are clients do not realize the leverage that they have, hmm. you know, whether you're talking about the major agencies or law firms. And again, I think people are realizing it now, but they're in a position to make a demand. If you're going to be making money off of me as a client, I can say that I want the team representing me to be more representative. Mm. So, it, I mean, which brings in to a whole other discussion um, in your world as a black woman. Um, has Have you ever felt that or can you get into a scenario where you have felt underestimated because of being you're a woman or because of you know you're an african-american excuse me a black woman yes because west indies right <laughs> well no, I, yes. I say african-american uh, I know, and, I, and I, I was think, born in yes you know in queens got you okay and i always like to make sure because we all have our preferences and um you but i want to know yes either so is there a situation that you remember just something you you can recall where you felt like you know you were underestimated because of those two things. I mean, I think it happens, you know, it happens from time to time. I mean, again, less so now because I have been doing this for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And so people are a bit more familiar with me. Um, But, you know, certainly I've been on the phone, you know, with somebody that may not know me and they'll they'll start, you know, in the patronizing tone. Well, normally in such and such and such and such, this is how I I say, you know, I am very well aware. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that happens. Would they make you feel like that, you know, that kid that was going for that Harvard alumni interview, so to speak, as a grown woman? <laughs> right? I mean, although, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a lot of confidence and um, and now people can Google you. So they do. So that really doesn't happen because yeah. people say, OK, she's a partner here. She went to school here. She's been doing this for this long. Obviously, she knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. So I really don't run into it now. Um much, you know, much more when I was much, you know, earlier in my career. Um, but I have, you know, I, I have a deep voice, you know, I never forget somebody. Uh-oh. I, I was on the phone <laughs> negotiating with somebody and this was an African-American man. And he came to the office to, you know, like bring the contract or whatever. And he said, I thought you were an old Jewish woman. What? <laughs> 
<laughs> I said, hmm, okay. You, have a, you actually have a very, like, soothing, like, a, I mean, dare I say, like, a bit of a sultry voice. Well, like, thank we, you. Yeah, just, it's, it's a very soft and soothing, and it's almost making me kind of come down and, like, have a relaxed tone. Because I think sometimes I can be a little... A little up here, but you're making me come down a little. Um, I love it. I think you can, you can like, you know, read a telephone book and. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so I like to ask every guest that comes on here mm-hmm. two questions. Mm-hmm. How would you define unbossed? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to be unbossed to you? And also tell me about a woman that you admire who's inspired you, who's unbossed. So to me, unbossed is a free black woman. Yes. And it means not being beholden, you know, and it, at the same time, unbossed to me is unapologetically black and unapologetically female and and feminist and or womanist, if you prefer, but mm-hmm. not running away from from either of those. That's what it means to me. Um, this is going to sound like a cliche, but. The, the woman that I admire is my mother. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. Um, Tell me about your mom. My mother is just, you know, we, she just celebrated her birthday on Friday. Oh, how old? She will kill me if I say it <laughs> on a podcast where people can access it's okay, it. It's okay. Because if you go on Facebook, she's younger than I am. I'm yes. like, you can't lie about your birth date. You can't be younger already. than your children. I love her already. I love her already. Yes. So that just means you I, you can be younger if you need to. That's it. Yes. Yeah, so, but. <laughs> but she, you know, I, and it's one of those things you don't fully appreciate somebody until you're an adult. And, you know, you talk to other women and they talk about, you know, how their their moms were very puritanical or this. And I said, no, my mother was very open about, you know, sexuality or partying or black culture or music or ambition or making sure you get your own. Um, Those are the things she taught me. Mm -hmm. And that's the way she lived her life has lived and continues to live her life. And that's the way you live yours now? Uh, yes, indeed. And, I'm... you know, she has a wonderful, wonderful relationship. She and my stepfather have been married 51 years. Clap then. <laughs> so, you know, that's, it's like she was a model in every respect. She she was an educated person. She was an ambitious person. She had a good relationship. She was honest. She likes to have fun. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, well, that. That works. I'm still saying I want to be her when I grow up. I love it. I'm sure she's very proud of her daughter. She is. Extremely proud. <laughs> well, that's all I have. But um, as one final little nod, if there's anything you want people to know about who you are, what you do for a living, anything. Um, I think that I want people to know that I'm a person with integrity. You know, that to me is the most important thing. It's the most important thing any lawyer has. Mm -hmm. Um, And before I was a lawyer, um, I, you know, wanted to have a reputation as as being someone that's honest. And then the other thing is that I want a reputation as being somebody that's that's smart and thoughtful um, and cares about the people that I work with. All right. Wonderful. So So. where can people read your blog and learn more about the work you do if you want them to find you? Because you can also just keep your privacy. Respect. Well, (laughs) so if they want to find out more about um, my law firm, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing law firm with incredible people, it's uh, www 
fkks.com, and it's Frankfurt Kernet Klein and Cells. And if they want to read my blog, which is amazing, by the way, thank it's, you. It's yeah, it's great. It is www.journaloftheplagueyearsalloneword.com. Email me at unbossedessence.com. Tell me about a woman in your life who inspires you to be unbossed. Or if you don't want to email, comment on social media using the hashtag unbossedpodcast. And please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Say nice things. Say constructive things, please. Okay. See you guys later.